pass on. Amen. Second Timothy, starting at verse 6, chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Amen. My title tonight is found in verse 12. It is simply, In Whom I Have Believed. Amen. In Whom I Have Believed. Bless the Lord. We will circle back to that passage uh, in a little while, but in the book of Acts, chapter 17, the Apostle Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. And while waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him, they're coming from uh, another area, he spends some time looking around the city. And if you read this passage of Scripture, Paul feels overwhelmed by the fact that the whole city is given over to idolatry. And he begins to debate and to discuss pretty much with anyone who will listen about the gospel of Jesus. He manages to get some attention doing this and finally, because of the, the people who he is talking to, he is brought to a place called Mars's Hill or the Hill of Mars where the educated and the philosophers would spend their time discussing new ideas. And When Paul is given the floor, he recounts to them how he passed by an altar with an inscription written upon it that said, To the unknown God, reflecting their superstition, that it was so strong that they, they put an altar to a God they might have overlooked without even knowing about him. That, that's pretty seriously superstitious right there. But Paul boldly declares that he has come to tell them who that unknown God is and begins to preach to them about Jesus. Paul's ministry, his life was devoted to reaching for the Gentiles, reaching for those that were not Jews by heritage, with the message of the gospel, which we know centers around who Jesus is. When we understand who Jesus is, the rest of the gospel fits together the way it was designed to. Amen. During his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, Paul, who at that time was still Saul of Tarsus before he had a name change and an identity change, had been confronted with the truth that this Jesus that he was persecuting was in fact the God of his fathers, was in fact the God of Moses. And Paul or Saul up until this point had thought that what he was doing 
in persecuting the infant church in the book of Acts was actually in service of God. He thought he was serving God by persecuting the church. But now having been confronted on that Damascus road, he is reconciling in his heart and mind that this Jesus is the same God that he learnt about as a young man. And that is why under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Paul would later write in Colossians 2 and 9, a verse of scripture that you should commit to memory. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, Paul, while he was still Saul, had always believed in God. He was raised to believe in God. He, we know that he had faith at least of a sort in God. His, his understanding of the law and the prophets was at an elite level. He was not a, a person that has a, had a casual passing interest, but he was an elite student. And he studied under a brilliant scholar by the name of Gamaliel, possibly, as from I can ascertain, for probably around 15 years. 15 years he walked with this rabbi, with this teacher, and he was passionate for the things that he had learned. But after his conversion experience, after he was born again of water and spirit, because we know he was baptized, we know that he did speak in other tongues from his epistles, that knowledge that he had poured into him at Gamaliel's feet now becomes combined with experience and relationship with Jesus Christ. That which was so much cerebral for the Apostle Paul, he, he probably, if we're honest, was proud of his knowledge. He probably liked to debate people to expose that he knew more than they did. And so he did have faith of a sort, but now that he's been born again, his whole experience has changed. It's different now. It's not just about what Moses wrote, but it's about the one that Moses prophesied about. It's not just about the prophets of the Old Testament, but he was able to read Isaiah and, and read about how the, the messianic prophecies or the coming of the Messiah, of how he would, would grow up out of a root of dry ground and how for unto us the Son is born. And all these scriptures suddenly made sense to him, but not just in his mind, in his experience. He could read the prophet Joel who said that in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he could point to that centuries old scripture and say, I've had that experience today. Amen. And we, those of you that are filled with the Holy Ghost understand the difference between knowing about Jesus and having the spirit of Jesus inside of us. I was talking to Sister Carla the other day and asking her sort of to describe how she felt receiving the Holy Ghost. And she basically said, it was like what I felt on the outside, but now it's on the inside. That's a pretty good description. That's, that's a pretty good description. And that is what Paul was able to say when he said, I know in whom I have believed. He could write those words and say those words in an incredible way. Amen. If I can detour slightly... Now, in John chapter 4, if you will turn there, we, we'll probably read a few verses there in a moment. But in John chapter 4 is the well-known, at least to many of us, the well-known story of Jesus and the woman at the well. We understand that the woman came to the well in the middle of the day because she was avoiding interaction with others. 
She was in a situation, her relationships had been unhealthy, is probably a kind way to put it. And because of the way that others looked at her and talked about her, she tried to come to the well when it was at its least busiest point of the day. She probably wasn't thrilled to see a Jew waiting at the well. But Jesus was there and he begins to talk to her and her awkwardness in this conversation is produced by at least a couple of things. Firstly, her immoral lifestyle has already created a social stigma in her life. People were unkind. You know, admittedly, her life was not exactly what people would consider decent and righteous. But it was awkward for her. And secondly, she is a Samaritan. And he is a Jew. Why is that an issue? I got to digging into this a little bit deeper than maybe I normally do. But in the time of Jesus, Samaria is both a city and a region. And its origins, at least from the biblical record, there are other traditions amongst the Samaritans, but at least from the biblical record, its origins go back to a time in Israel's history when the nation was divided into two kingdoms. After Saul and David and Solomon, consequences of sin and, and people's bad choices, the nation split into a southern kingdom that became known as Judah and a northern kingdom that was known as Israel. And if you've never heard that concept before, that's okay. But in the back of your Bible, you've probably got a few pages of lovely colored maps. And one of those possibly has the divided kingdom as one of those maps. And when you read the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you read the history of this divided kingdom. And that history tells a story of many wicked kings, a couple of good ones, not too many good ones, but a whole lot of wicked kings, a lot of idol worship, and of prophets that God sent to his people to try and get them back on track. Try and, the Lord was merciful, he was patient, tried to get them back on track, and Samaria became basically the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. But because of their ongoing, repeated wickedness, both the north and the south would eventually test the Lord's patience to breaking point. And he allowed them, Sister Natalie touched on this briefly this morning, but he allowed them to be taken into captivity by other nations such as Babylon and Assyria. Now, after some time, the southern kingdom of Judah experienced a restoration by the grace of God, and you can read some of that in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those prophets. But the northern kingdom was never really the same again. That's probably putting it simply. But And if you read Second Kings chapter 17, you will see that because of a collection of circumstances, the king of Assyria repopulated the cities of Samaria with a variety of people brought from different areas and backgrounds and with them they brought a variety of gods, a variety of traditions, a variety of religion and a variety of cultures. And so Samaria ends up being this salad, this mixture of the remnants of the Jews who were left behind and of other people who were brought in. And so what ends up happening there is they, they begin to develop a form of worship where there is some worship of the one true God, 
but running in parallel and at the same time, there is various other forms of worship of idols, false gods, ancestors, the the elements, the, the planets, all this stuff, whatever they could find, they basically would worship it. And so Samaria was a blend of people and a blend of faiths. It's kind of, it didn't really fit, but somehow it functioned. Over time, the Samaritans came to believe that only the five books of Moses were from God, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, I believe. There's a Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed that they were the only inspired books that came from God. They did not recognize the other writings and the prophets as the Jews did. And the Samaritans actually built their own temple on a hill called Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And this temple was actually destroyed by Jews during a civil uprising rebellion around about 100 years before the time of Jesus. So this is the backdrop of the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. There's a bit more to it than sometimes we realize. This division is based on ancestry, it's based on politics, and it's based on religion. And the woman at the well is very quick to point out that it is somewhat out of character for a Jew to ask a Samaritan for anything, even a glass of water, even a drink, probably didn't have a glass, but even a drink of water. And if you know the story, Jesus begins to speak to her about a different kind of water. And in John chapter 4 and verse 10, we're going to read a passage here. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. You've got no bucket. The well is deep. From whence or from what source then hast thou this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. One of those correct but missing some details answers. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. Maybe he was looking at her Facebook profile, who knows. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that you said truly. He said, the bit you told me is true. You left out a few details. But the bit you told me is true. And the woman said unto her, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Really? That's fairly obvious. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And then quite bluntly he says, you worship, you know not what. For we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now if you said that nowadays, you'd be on the front page of the paper and on every website. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Amen. It's a long passage, but all necessary. The woman at the well seems to very quickly forget about their differences when Jesus starts to talk about living water. You know, how is it that you ask me, a Samaritan, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. When Jesus starts talking about living water and the gift of God, she seems to forget their differences and asks him for that living water. But then Jesus reveals that he knows what her life is like. And all of a sudden she goes back to the differences that she was at before. Goes back to the separation, brings them back into the conversation. She, she says, our fathers worshipped over here on Mount Gerizim, and the subtext is, which, by the way, your people destroyed our temple, just so you don't forget that. That's, that's the unspoken subtext that's going on in that conversation. He said, but you Jews, you, you guys say that we should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus responds by saying that the time has come when mountains and temples don't matter anymore. Those things aren't relevant anymore. In fact, he said, you don't even know who you worship. You're, you're reaching back to religious tradition and and the division between Jews and Samaritans, but he's saying, you do not even know who you worship. He said, we do, but you don't. He said, salvation is of the Jews. And he was right because salvation was coming through Israel, not through Samaria. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 specifically not to go to the Samaritans and not to go to the Gentiles because it needed to start with Israel. Now, I'm glad that that was a temporary situation, that it began to spread. Otherwise, we'd be wasting our time here tonight. But Jesus was saying it's time for the true worshipers to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he said, God is a spirit. And as such, true worship cannot be limited to buildings, to traditions, and to politics. And then then the lady says to the Lord, we know the Messiah is coming. We know there's someone coming. We believe in that promise. And we know that when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. He is going to bring us that truth that you're speaking about. The Father seeks us to worship him in spirit and truth. When the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us what that is. And then Jesus so profoundly says unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And if you read on in John 4, you'll see that Jesus stays in that area for a couple of days, which is very breaking a whole lot of social conventions. And then he returns to Galilee. We don't know all of what happened in those couple of days, but he no doubt ministered to the people. But even then, it was not yet time for the Samaritans. So it's almost like in those couple of days, Jesus is giving them a preview. He's giving them a sneak peek of what is yet to come. He's saying, watch this space, you know, being released in, such and such a day. He didn't give them a date probably, but, but he was giving them some insight into what would come later. Because when we get to the book of Acts chapter 8, Philip goes down to Samaria, preaches to the city, the whole city responds to God, and they begin to experience for the first time what it really means to worship in spirit and in truth. Those things that Jesus had started when he was there in John 4, Philip says, this is what that's all about. It's very interesting when you put the pieces of what we've talked about tonight together, it was the persecution by Saul of Tarsus 
with his incomplete understanding of Jesus that caused Philip to go down to Samaria and complete their understanding. It's amazing how God has a way of working things around. Saul is very incomplete in his knowledge, sincere but sincerely wrong, and his persecuting of the church causes Philip to go, it's probably safer to go preach in Samaria. I think I hear the call to Samaria. And so he goes to Samaria and begins to preach to them, and no doubt there were people there that Jesus spoke to in the two days he hung out in Samaria in John chapter 4 that, remember, this is what that man told us about a few years ago, and he completes their understanding. Amen. Lord, help us to add to the faith of others. Amen. But both Paul and the Samaritans had their roots in the Old Testament, but would both need assistance to connect those roots to Jesus while they were actually becoming a part of the New Testament. They didn't have it yet. They were, they were basically living it while it was happening. And what, what they were doing was written afterwards. And so Jesus is the full or complete revelation of the many pieces of revelation that God supplied throughout the Old Testament. As he dropped almost like breadcrumbs of knowledge and revelation through the Old Testament, Jesus is all of those pieces brought together. Now, some of you are familiar with this more than others, but if you know much about the Old Testament, in the Old Testament we read some things that when you go to Bible school, they teach you were called compound names of Jehovah. In other words, there's more than one part to the name. There are pieces that are joined together. And what God did was, in, in particular circumstances or situations that his people or a person found themselves in, the Lord would get involved in an act of deliverance. He would get involved in an act of healing, in an act of miraculous provision or whatever it was. And that action revealed to them an aspect of his power or his character. He would say, I'm doing this and I'm revealing a piece of the puzzle to you. And if you could flip that table up, please. Thank you, Daniel. This, these are the compound names that are found in the Old Testament and where they are found and what those names mean. Now, in, if you've got a King James Bible, uh, there's a few of them that are actually recorded in the Scripture as they're written in this table. For example, Jehovah Jireh, I think number one, uh, number three, and maybe number five are recorded in the King James as they're written there. The others are translated into English, but you will find those compound names if you look at the original Hebrew, if that makes sense. Hopefully what I'm saying makes sense. And so you have all of these situations, and in case you're worried, we're not going to read all those scriptures tonight. because Some of you have to go to work tomorrow. But if you, I'm happy to share this table with you. Many of you would have books that have, have these lists in them. But in each of these situations, God got involved in a way that revealed he was able to do those things whether it was to provide or to heal or to deliver or to bring peace or whatever it may be, each of these compound names, Jehovah fill in the blank, revealed a piece of who Jesus or rather of who God was. Now, remembering what we read from Colossians earlier, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, the name Jesus means Jehovah's salvation or Jehovah's savior, something like that combined together but when you read Colossians 2 and 9 and it says in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily what that means is that all of those attributes on that table reside in the incarnation they are resident within God manifest in the flesh the fullness of the Godhead 
Not the majority, not more than 50%, not a, a, a pass, but the fullness or the completeness of all of those character traits and demonstrations are distilled down, if you like, into the name of Jesus Christ. It's very powerful that we understand that. Amen. Amen. Some examples of how Jesus fulfills those all. And I'm not going to, again, not going to do the whole table, but some examples quickly of that fulfillment. Jehovah Jireh, the story of Abraham and, and Isaac and how the Lord provided a, a sacrifice. So Jehovah Jireh is the Lord who sees or the Lord who provides. Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. How? By Christ Jesus. Jehovah Rapha, or the Lord who heals, Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. How was he healed? In the name of Jesus Christ. The next chapter over the page, still connected to the same story, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. So Jesus is Jehovah Rapha, or Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Two chapters later, the Lord said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Moving on, Jehovah Ra, which means the Lord is our shepherd, which you'll find that in the 23rd Psalm if you look at the original Hebrew. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Jehovah Hosinu, or however you pronounce that, the Lord is our creator. Colossians chapter 1, 14 to 16, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, not most things, all things were created by him and for him. All these compound names from the Old Testament, you don't have to memorize them and think, oh, who do I need to call on? What's this situation? Is it, a, is it a provide? Is it a heal? Is it a victory? No, it's all wrapped up in just one name. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is present. Matthew 28 and 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. John 14, 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Hebrews 13 and 5, the last portion says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, if you're interested, you can get the rest of that table and you can go through those Old Testament stories and I'm pretty sure you'll be able to find a corresponding scripture in the New Testament that addresses the same subject, but it's under the one name. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. So that's a lot of scripture that emphasizes that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament and that his name incorporates all previous revelations of God. That's kind of amazing when you start to think about it. 
these incredible patriarchs like Abraham who were given a piece of the puzzle. You know, and then Moses and David, they, they got a piece of the puzzle. Then Jesus shows up and he's the whole puzzle. He doesn't, you know, it's, don't worry about this. It's just giving him a name which is above every other name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Amen. There's a whole lot of scripture that bring home the power of the name of Jesus and who Jesus is. And this stuff is awesome to understand. And if it, it's, you know, I, I love, I'm not going to embarrass anybody personally, but there are some young people in this place that come to me that are studying the word of God, that have questions about the Godhead and about who Jesus is. Don't ever stop doing that. Get a passion for the word of God. Amen. It's, it's, there's, there's no time wasted studying the word of God. But it cannot stop at understanding. It cannot just stop at knowledge. You know, you can teach this and lay this out and, and put it all together nicely and whatever, but it can't stop there. Because if it stops at understanding and that's all we have, then we're really not any different from the Samaritan woman or Saul of Tarsus. We've got some knowledge. We know about some stuff. But we need more than that. Sister Natalie ministered this morning about protecting your miracle or not taking the transformation for granted and how, you know, what Jesus does on the inside, how he transforms is is really so much more important than healing our bodies or even breaking chains of addiction. I'm glad he does those things. I'm glad we pray for the sick and they're healed. I'm glad that there is testimony after testimony in this place of how God breaks addiction. But transformation is what it's all about. Because when revelation teams up with transformation, amen, then we can say like the Apostle Paul, we know in whom we have believed. When Paul wrote those words, he wasn't saying, I finished my PhD, I've studied ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew and Chaldean and any other language they were offering at the time. He was saying, I've been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I know who Jehovah was, but I know who he was when he came in the flesh. And when our revelation teams up with transformation, that's powerful. Amen. I love the name of Jesus. I was raised... My pastor drilled that into me almost like brainwashing. I'm glad he did because my brain needed a lot of washing. All power belongs to that name. But let's take it a step further. John 14 and 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The revelation of Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish by coming in flesh opened a door. It provided access to being able to receive the Holy Ghost. And we've had people just recently receive the Holy Ghost. We have more people that God is going to fill with the Holy Ghost. But that, that was the ultimate purpose of Calvary. Even the religious world draws the, the cross as the pinnacle of why Jesus came. And it was an incredible event, but Pentecost was why the cross took place. The death, burial, and resurrection was so that there might be an outpouring of his spirit. Amen. He gave his life to pay a price for sin so that a gulf could be spanned and we could be filled with his spirit. That's what it's all about. 
It's not just about understanding his identity, which is crucial. But the name brings with it the power to pour out the Spirit of God. It brings us, this brings us full circle back to our opening text in 2 Timothy, just in case I'd forgotten about that. Paul begins 2 Timothy chapter 1 by telling Timothy that he remembers the faith of his grandmother and his mother. He says, you come from a family of believers, Timothy. They can't have been believers for very long because the gospel hadn't gone to that part of the world for very long. But they're believers nonetheless in whatever their understanding was. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah. And Timothy, that's a great thing. If you have a godly heritage, if you've got parents and grandparents and beyond that in the kingdom of God, you need to thank God for that. Amen. But then Paul said in verse 6, which we read, Wherefore I put in thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, called us with unholy calling, not according to our works, thank you Jesus, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Wasn't that an awesome lesson from Sister Sham about his grace last Sunday night? His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Let's pause there for a moment. Timothy, Paul said, there's something inside of you. And while it's awesome that your mom and your grandmother are believers, this cannot be inherited, Timothy. This is not something they can leave you in their will. They can influence you. They can impact you. But this is something you've got to have for yourself. He said, Timothy, God has filled you with his spirit and he has placed a calling and an anointing upon your life. He said that spirit is not a spirit of fear. It's not something to be timid and shy about, but it is a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. It takes more than knowledge to walk in power. It takes more than academia and and learning things in our brain. We've got to do that, but it's got to drop about 12 inches and get down into our hearts if the power is going to be demonstrated. It can't just be, well, I learned this and I can quote that. That's great, but take that knowledge and let it become relationship. Let revelation join together with transformation and see what God can demonstrate in your life. Paul said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of what we may have to endure. You know, we're in a very blessed and a free country. I don't think it's getting better. I think there's becoming such a a divide, a rapidly forming divide between what used to be considered basic goodness and where the world is at and we are going to be uh, stand out more. If you don't stand out more, then something's wrong with your walk with God because the world is drifting. The world is drifting at an incredible rate and if you don't stand out more and more, it's because you're drifting with them. If I stay on a firm foundation and they drift, that gap has got to get wider. Otherwise, I'm drifting with the world. God help us not to drift. Amen. Paul said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the things you might have to endure. He said, we're called for his purpose, not ours. He said, Timothy, he had a plan for us since before creation. 
before there was even a mud ball for us to stand on. He had a plan to make a way to fill us with his spirit. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, but he's now made made manifest. That plan from the beginning, now it's made manifest. It's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. You can just read over that. You can just stop. He abolished death. That's pretty amazing. He abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light. It's been revealed through the gospel. Whereunto, because of this cause, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles for the which cause, same cause, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Paul said, I don't mind suffering. I'm here for something bigger than my own comfort. He said then these words, which is our title tonight, for I know whom I have believed. Knowledge is, you know, people won't suffer persecution for knowledge. Biblical knowledge is not going to get you through if we face persecution. Having a head full of scripture is not going to be enough if this world comes against the church. It's got to be in here. It's got to be transformation. Amen. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Timothy, Jesus took care of death. The gospel message has shone a light that shows the way to life and immortality. Paul said, that's why I'm called to preach. I'm not called to blow your mind with my biblical understanding, but I'm called to preach because of the light of the gospel and the pathway to immortality. And that sounds like something out of a fairy tale. But my Bible says that the day is coming when the trumpet's going to sound and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed. Amen. And this mortal is going to put on immortality. This corruptible is going to put on incorruption. It's going to happen. It's a promise from the Word of God. Amen. I don't care how advanced science gets and how long they're able to keep us alive with machines. Sooner or later it is appointed unto man once to die. But there's an immortality that waits for those for whom the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ has shined into their hearts. Amen. Paul's, I'm sure, I I imagine that Paul compared his before and after. You know, he had a head full of knowledge when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a big brain. But now he's got light and life living in his soul. It must have been, I can't grasp it because I can't get inside his head, but all of that knowledge of the God of the burning bush, of Genesis, of all that knowledge throughout the Old Testament, when he began to really grasp who Jesus was and all those pieces just begin to fall into place. Just like tumblers, they all just came down and he began to see what he had learned and was learning about Jesus because he was writing to us. As he's getting revelation, he's connecting it with his knowledge from the Old Testament. That must have been some experience for the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm not ashamed to suffer for the gospel because I know whom I have believed. And he is going to keep me until the end. Stand with me if you would tonight.